0: I'm excited to be with you guys this morning. It's always good to be with the people of God. Amen. It's always good to be with the people of God. There's, there's something that happens when you gather with God's people that happens nowhere else in the world. Thank you. Uh, and so it's always a joy to be uh, in your presence and, and to gather with you as we worship the Lord. So let's go ahead and get in this text. I'm not going to be long before you. Uh, if you can't stand with me, open your Bibles to Mark chapter 9, beginning at verse 14. Mark chapter 9, beginning at verse 14. We're going to read from 14 down to verse 24. I'm going to do something a little little bit different today. I'm going to read the even verses. I want you to read the odd verses, and then we're going to read the last verse together. Amen? Amen. If you still need more time, say more time. All right, I heard a couple. All right. All right, here we go. Mark. Chapter 9, verse 14. Again, I'm going to read the even. I'm going to have you guys read the odds. We're going to read the last one together. And when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them and scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. And he asked them, what are you arguing about with them? And it has often cast him into the fire and into the water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. Altogether, immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. Let's pray. Father God, I'm so grateful for your word, I'm grateful that we can depend on your faithfulness uh, in times and circumstances and difficulties of life when everything else around us is unsure and unstable. We can depend on you, and so God, I pray that we would hear an encouraging word from uh, from this text today that shows us and challenges us what it looks like to depend wholly and trust wholly upon the name of our God, who is able, who is power to do all things, and so uh, we just bring that before you and pray that you'll bless our time together. In Christ's name, all of God's people said, amen. 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 Amen, you may be seated. If I could uh, tag, the, tag this text this morning, it's uh, believing in an unbelieving generation. Believing in an unbelieving uh, generation. Um, when, when you get When you get married I know my, my married people will probably agree with me um, For those of you who are Wanting to get married or Looking forward to getting married eventually uh, I'm just going to let you in on A little secret Right um, <laughs> Rob you silly man um, When you get married Especially for the guys I want, you to, I want you to listen to this So you know how to respond rightly And hopefully it's for the young ladies, it'll it'll help you out as well, just to let you know sort of what's going on. But when you get married, I don't care how godly you are, how much you guys love Jesus, she does not trust you. Now, I'm going to tell, I, I know y'all looking at me like, I know y'all looking at me like, <laughs> I, I know y'all looking at me like, hold on, what are you talking about? Like, I'm not going to step out on her. Like, I'm not going to. I'm not going to cheat on her. I'm not going to be, you know, messing with no other girls. And that's not really what I'm talking about, right? So when I say that she doesn't trust you, I'm talking about once you guys get married. See, before you get married, you know, everybody's all godly. You know, God called me to her and God called me to him. And we just know the Lord brought us together. I mean, this this is just of God. I mean, it can't get no better than this. Y'all smiling, you are happy, always holding hands. I mean, no, there's never a disagreement. Like you guys are always just happy in Jesus, right? And then you get married, right? There you go. <laughs> 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 then, <laughs> then, then, then you then you get married, right? And 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 because you guys have been, you know. Have been walking through biblical womanhood and biblical manhood. You know, the 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 husband is now going to try to walk in biblical manhood, and he's going to want to initiate, and he's going to want to take the lead, and 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 there's going to come a point in time where you guys have to make a big decision, and the husband's going to want to do one thing, and the wife is not going to agree at all. And she's 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 gonna she's gonna try her best to let you know how much she doesn't agree while still maintaining Biblical womanhood. (laughs) But she's still not going to agree. And at that moment, I can guarantee you, she doesn't trust whatever decision you decide to make that's different than hers. And I'm gonna tell you why. It's because up until this point, she's had the freedom to make her own decisions And now she has to put the trajectory of her life and her decisions on the clout of somebody else. And when you first get married as a man, you haven't earned that yet. You you haven't earned it practically yet. Because y'all haven't gone through nothing. And so she hasn't learned how to watch you biblically make a decision with patience, and with prayer. And so when you first have to start making decisions, she's not going to be sure about whether or not you're making the right decision. And she's going to think she can make it better than you, which sometimes she might be able to. And so regardless of how godly you guys are and how much you guys are in love and how great the honeymoon is and all that stuff, when you get married, even though there's relationship there, there's still unbelief. The jury is still out on you until you've proved yourself. And so we find ourselves here as it relates to Jesus the Christ because he's been building a relationship with these people, with the crowd, with the disciples. And yet, in the midst of their relationship, he's still an unknown in their eyes. The, the jury is still out on Jesus as to who he is and whether or not what he's saying about himself can be trusted. And so this is where we find ourselves in Mark chapter 9. And a few chapters earlier in chapter 6, Jesus gathers the 12 disciples to himself and he prepares them for ministry. He says, I'm going to send you guys out. And, and he, 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 he gives them authority over demons, to cast out demons right? He gives them the authority to heal people. I mean, I don't know about y'all, but that's kind of crazy. I mean, if Jesus just gave me some authority, I wouldn't even wait for people to ask for healing. I'd just be like, you get healing, and you get healing. Look under your seats, everybody got healing. I mean, I would just, i go straight Oprah ministry and just be, everybody gets healing and all that type of stuff. So you can imagine how the disciples feel when they're going around just healing everybody, casting out, demons chapter verse 13 of chapter 6 says that that they had much success as they went out and did ministry they didn't experience any roadblocks or 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 anything any pushback because for them they were working under the authority Jesus had given them and so they had they had some power now they had some authority and so they come back Jesus debriefs with them and then over the next couple of chapters uh kind of bunched in there Jesus himself performs a bunch of miracles in, 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 by way of the crowd. In front of the crowd, the scribes, the elders, even his disciples. He feeds 5,000, walks on water, goes to a particular region, and heals pretty much everybody in the city. He, he, he comes across a Canaanite woman who's not of the people of God, and she shows so much faith he heals her daughter. He comes across two blind guys, heals them, a deaf man heals them. Then we get to the end of chapter 8, and after all of these things, Jesus asks his disciples, who do you say that I am? Who do they say that I am? You're a prophet. You're Elijah. You're you're this. You're that. Who do you say that I am? You are... Jesus the Christ, the son of the living God. And then he responds to Peter, Peter, flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. And then shortly after that, he grabs Peter, James, and John, takes them up to the Mount of, uh, to the mountain, Mount of Transfiguration. They get to see a little bit of Jesus's glory. So at this point, everybody's on a spiritual high. Ministry's going well. Life is good. There aren't any roadblocks in life. I mean, they, I mean, Jesus is doing stuff. People following him like, yeah, Jesus is the man, all this stuff. Here they are coming down off of the mountain, and this is what they find. Verse 14. And when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them and scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. And he asked them, what are you arguing about? Someone from the crowd answered him, teacher, I brought to you my son, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down, and he foams at the mouth and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. So Jesus comes down from the mountain, and immediately when he gets down there, he finds this scene, this this chaotic scene, where his disciples, who up until that point had had much success, casting out demons and healing people, uh, were now seemed to be powerless. This wasn't the first time that they had encountered demon possession without Jesus around. They, Jesus sent them out. They did this, all of that ministry without Jesus around. And so that wasn't the issue. But for some reason, this father brings his boy to Jesus. Jesus isn't there, so he goes to the disciples which would have been obvious given that they had been healing and, and doing miraculous works as well. And so this father brings him to the disciples, and for some reason, they can't heal him. There's nine disciples down there, and nobody has enough power to heal him. They don't even have enough collective power amongst themselves to put power together and heal him. <laughs> and and what's, what's funny is, is, This is unique to Mark, because Matthew and Luke give very short accounts, and Mark is very detailed in this this account, but Mark puts in here that they were arguing with the scribes. And so imagine this. The disciples, given their history of success with casting out demons, come across this boy, and now they're unable to. And Jesus isn't around, so they can't ask him, "What, what do we do? Like, what's happening? Why isn't this working? And so up walks the scribes, the people who have been already questioning Jesus and trying to undermine his authority, trying to turn the people from following Jesus back to following them. And so here come the scribes, no Jesus around. The disciples have already been deflated by this lack of power that they have. And so now the scribes come arguing with them. See, I told y'all Jesus ain't got no power. I told y'all he's not who he said he was. How's he God and y'all can't heal? Don't people from God have the ability to heal? He's of the devil. That's why y'all can't heal him. And so the scribes are here making fun of the disciples, laughing at them, mocking them in front of the crowd. Mind you, the entire crowd, there's a huge crowd that's gathered now, so they're all watching this. The people who are following Jesus, who are tailing Jesus around the countryside, are, are watching this as the scribes are berating the disciples in front of their eyes. Imagine how the crowd feels if they really had been following Jesus and were excited about what Jesus was doing, but still were unsure about who this Jesus was. And now you have this impotence of lack of power in healing this young boy. And now the scribes come in with all their theological knowledge and they're berating and making fun of the disciples. How do you feel now? in the crowd. And so it says that Jesus comes down in an opportune time, and they were amazed. They were greatly amazed to see him. Not amazed in the sense of excited, but they were greatly alarmed. This is the only time this word is used outside of Mark, later in Mark, where it talks about to be greatly distressed. When Jesus was praying in the garden, he was greatly distressed. There was a distress among the crowd because of the confusion of what was going on before their eyes, and they needed Jesus, and He showed up at an opportune time, and so they run to Jesus. Jesus, obviously, seeing this chaotic scene, what like, what are you arguing with them fools about? What are they talking about? Jesus always knows that they're up to some nonsense always gets at the heart to ask those underneath questions when dealing with the, the scribes, Pharisees, and the elders. And he knew right off the bat, what are you arguing about with these fools? So one man from out of the crowd, he says, my son is sick. Luke says that he has epilepsy. Or Matthew says he has epilepsy. Luke says that that's his only son. Here, it says that he's demon-possessed. And so for years... This father has watched his son writhing in pain, foaming at the mouth, grinding his teeth, probably taking him to the physicians of the day, the natural healers of the day, exhausting all hope until he finally hears that Jesus is in town. And then he brings him to Jesus. Jesus isn't there, so he gives him to the disciples, and the disciples can't heal. And so now the the father is at a place of desperation the reason why all of this is going on is because I brought my son to you to be healed and your disciples couldn't heal him. And while everybody else, while while, while I'm here for my son and the disciples are here for my son, everybody else is arguing about the theology of why they couldn't heal him. And nobody cares about the boy. And so, he brings the son to him, tells him what's going on, and he says, your your disciples have, have been impotent, have been rendered useless, have no power whatsoever whatsoever at all. And then Jesus responds, O oh, faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear, to suffer, to endure, to be patient with you? Bring him to me. Jesus has, Jesus has done all this healing in their presence. Jesus has Fed thousands of people. Jesus has cast out demons. All of this in their presence. Jesus has a history of the miraculous. And yet in this instance, people still don't believe. See, on on one hand, it's a rebuke towards the disciples. Because Jesus had empowered them to do this very thing, and they couldn't. On one hand, it's to the scribes because of their their blatant unbelief in their own hearts and their attempts to draw people away from God. And on the last hand, it's to the crowd because the crowd was so tossed to and fro in the waves of discussion and theology that nobody believes, even though Jesus has been among them for so long. Jesus has been working miracles for so long. Jesus has been walking with them for so long. Jesus has been teaching with authority for so long, and yet they still don't believe. And so he, Jesus, Jesus almost throws his hands up. How, why we got to keep playing this game? How long are we going to do this? Are you with me or not? faithless generation, how long am I to bear with you? So he says, bring me the boy. They bring him the boy. when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy, and he fell on the ground and rolled around, foaming at the mouth. So Jesus asked, how long has this been happening to him? And the dad says, from childhood. Could you imagine this, A, a father's only son? And from infancy, you see him writhing in pain dropping on the floor and being so rigid that you can't move him and he can't move and he's foaming at the mouth and he's grinding his teeth and he can't help himself because on one hand he's sick and on the other hand that sickness is being uh, instigated by demonic possession Could could you imagine your only son being thrown into fire and he can't help himself. He can't stop himself or being drowned because he's being thrown to and fro. Could you imagine just the, the mental exhaustion and the emotional drain of what it's like for this dad to care for a sick child and a sick child who is borderline suicidal because of demonic activity? Could you, day after day, Week after week, year after year. Could you imagine going home with this boy and, and not being able to really leave the room because of what he might do to himself? Always being on guard, wondering if you wake up the next morning and your son will be dead. And so get, get the pick there's desperation in this son when he brings him to Jesus. Can you imagine how deflating it is to hear all the stories about how Jesus is saving people and he's healing people and his disciples are healing people and then you get there and it doesn't work for you. You, you get there and the, the hope, the glimmer of hope that was in your eye because you knew your son was going to see Jesus and then you get there and nothing works. This is where the Father is. Verse 22. So after he describes to Jesus what's been going on with his son from childhood, he says something very key. He says, But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. Now, now, when when he says that, first notice that he says, us. As if he's one of he's the one with the issue. He 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 suffers with his son. There's a, there's a tender, gentle moment there between a father and son where he says, My issue is his issue, and his issue is my issue. So when you help him, you help me. But also know, notice how he prefaces his request. If you can. It, it, if you can. See, there's a a level of doubt that's been risen in his mind as to whether or not Jesus was actually even able to heal. Despite the stories that he had heard, despite the people who were probably in the crowd that may have been impacted by Jesus too, he says, I've dealt with so much struggle in my life. I've come up against uh, insufficient Medical attention, time after time. I've even encountered some of your people who couldn't do anything to help me. Why should I believe you if you can do anything? There there was a level of doubt in his mind that had arisen where he was unsure. And yet Jesus responds in a very, very funny way, so to speak. Jesus says to him, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. You know, the, the Greek structure of the sentence is really weird. Jesus basically, what is he, he's doing is he's taking the father's, if you can, lifting it off of the page and turning it to face him. So he has to ask himself the question, if you can believe all things are possible to those who believe. The the issue was not whether or not Jesus was able to heal, the issue was whether or not the man was willing to believe that he was. And so Jesus Jesus challenges him and puts it in front of his face and says, do you really believe? Because if you believe, then I can do it. If you believe, I will do it. But the question is, do you believe? Verse 24, it says, immediately, immediately. See, when Jesus asked that question, if you believe, or says that statement, if you believe, if you can, if you can believe, all things are possible for those who believe. And this father sees that statement and he sees His unbelief. He comes face to face with him, his unbelief and his lack of trust in God, and he he immediately cries out. See this. Sometimes you you should get to a point of desperation in your soul where you've got to cry out. Despite all that's going on, the father here didn't blame circumstances. He had come face to face with the reality that he couldn't blame the disciples. It wasn't on them. It wasn't on the crowd. It wasn't on the scribes, what the scribes were saying in their ear. The, the root of this unbelief was his own heart. And when he came face to face with his, his lack of belief in God and this lack of trust in God, the Bible says immediately he cried out. Sometimes we got to get to that place where we're ready to cry out to the Lord. See, that's, that's why it's good. It's good to get to know your God. It's good to know, know your Because when you, when you get to know your God, you know what he's capable of. See, see the, the old church had a bunch of names for God that they would cry out to. El Shaddai. God, my provider. Jehovah Jireh. Jehovah Nisi, the Lord, my banner. God Almighty. And they would cry out these names to God because they knew, they understood the character of God and what it meant when when Israel would, would rally to God using the call of his name for those circumstances. And we've got to get to a place where we call out to God for help. See, the, the matter here is a matter of dependency upon God. Do, do you really depend upon God by faith? When, when troubling circumstances arise, where's the first place you go to? Do, do, do you go to your friends just to see what they think? Do you go to articles and TV Where where do you go? When when you need a word from God, when you need to be uplifted by God, when your soul is in despair, where do you go? When your marriage is in trouble, where do you go? When when you're when you're crumbling under the temptation of sex, where do you go? Where, where, where you go lets you know whether or not you depend on God. But look, but look at what the father says after he cries out. He says, I believe, help my unbelief. See, there's, there's a beautiful tension there of recognizing that in one sense he comes to God in belief, and on the other sense he needs help to believe. And on one hand, he's saying, Lord, I believe that you can move. I believe that you can act. Help me to believe. The goal is never perfect faith. It's dependent faith. Yeah. That's it. That's it. Yes, sir. Many times we fail to go to God because we feel so insecure about our level of faith. We feel like we can't go to God because we don't believe enough. We don't trust enough. Well, here you see a father who, he says, I, I believe, but I need your help to believe. I need your, your, your help to believe. I, I, I want to have more faith. I know I need to have more faith. Will you help me to have more faith where I'm... I've I've given up all my other resources. I don't come to God now with a backup plan just in case he doesn't answer. I come before the Lord with an expectation that my God will hear and my God will answer. See, there's there's something about the faith of a believer and God moving on your behalf. There's, There's a relationship there. That's why in Mark chapter 6, early in Mark chapter 6, Jesus goes to Nazareth, his hometown, and it said he couldn't do any work there because of their unbelief. There's there's something uniquely special with those who place their faith and their confidence and their their trust in Christ, even even if it's not perfect. Where he, he uses that to respond and even he waits for that to respond. There there are some things that God will not do in your life. There are some prayers that God will not answer in your life unless you've come by faith. I know y'all don't believe me. There was a centurion, not even of the Jewish religion, comes to Jesus. His servant is, is, is ill. He says, Lord, I need you to help me. I need you to come with me. Jesus says, sure, I'll come. He said, no, I don't necessarily need you to come to my house. I'm a man of authority. And so when I speak, people listen and things are done. That's what you can do. And Jesus responds to him, I tell you, I've never seen anyone in Israel with this much faith. Because of your faith, let it be done for you. There was a paralytic, couldn't move, couldn't walk. Jesus was in a home healing a bunch of people, no way for him to get in. A couple of his friends get together and say, let's take him through the roof. So they carry him up to the roof and lower him down. Jesus looks up and says, because of the faith of your friends, your sins are forgiven. Another man comes to Jesus, my daughter is dying, will you come? On the way, Jesus is in a crowd of people. A woman touches the hem of his garment. Jesus says, what was that power just came from me? Everybody's like, Jesus, what are you talking about? You're in a group of people, everybody's touching you. No, I know when power went out from me. And there lying at his feet is a woman who, for the last over ten years, has had a discharge of blood, and she spent up all of her fortune trying to get it healed and worked out and fixed. And she said to him, I I, I just thought, if I could just touch. Not, not even you, but if I could touch the hem of your garment, the outside of your garment, I'd be healed. He said, Old daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. There were two blind men. As Jesus was walking by, calling out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David, have mercy on us. And Jesus says, Do you believe I can do this for you? And they said, Yes. We believe that you can make us see again. And he said, your faith has made you well. Do you hear it? A Canaanite woman, not even of the people of God, has a sick daughter. And she's arguing with Jesus because Jesus is like, the time for your people hasn't come yet. I didn't come for for you. And she says, but even, even dogs get the crumbs that have fallen off the table He says, your faith has made you well. There's there's a connection that when we come to God with with an utter dependence, where where he's our only option, where where he's the only one that can come to our, our aid, he's the only one that can come to our rescue, he says, your faith, in every one of these scenarios, your faith has made you well. I've seen your faith. Never have I seen faith like this before. Your faith has made you well. If you have the faith of a mustard seed, you can say to that mountain, be moved into the sea, and it will happen. All it takes is dependent faith upon the Lord. And So, so the question is, where, where in your life do you harbor unbelief that God can't move? There's an area of your life right now that you've been waiting for God to move. You've been pleading with God to move. For some of you, it's sexual sin. Some of you are having difficulty in marriage. Some of you have no direction in where where you're going in life, and you've been praying and yearning for the Lord to answer you. Have you come by faith? See, he says that this generation is a faithless generation because they had been around him and they had seen him do so many things. They had seen him heal the blind and raise the dead to life and make the lame walk. And yet in the midst of all of this, they still didn't believe that he was who he said he was. See, the, the problem with us sometimes in terms of why we don't depend on God It's because we get a tunnel vision of our circumstances and it keeps us from seeing everything that God has done both in our lives and in the lives of those around us everywhere we every way we look we see the fingerprints of God doing this and doing that and doing this and doing that and yet we get in the middle of a circumstance and we don't believe. Or we, we get so accustomed to God moving our behalf, it's no longer special to us anymore. I'll share this and then I'm out of your way. There was a man who took his wife on a trip to the Yellowstone National Park. And in Yellowstone National Park, there's a, there's a geyser, very popular one called Old Faithful. And uh, if you go there at any given point in time, uh, you'll see a bunch of tourists there. So he takes his wife there, he gets there. There's hundreds of people around this geyser. Everybody's got their cameras ready, video recorders, cell phones. Everybody's ready to experience this, this powerful, majestic sight of this, this geyser. And, and next to the geyser, there's a, there's a digital clock, every 24 minutes it goes off, like clockwork, every 24 minutes. And every 24 minutes you can see people running to the geyser to behold how awesome and beautiful and just experience just how wonderful this thing is, every 24 minutes, faithfully, every 24 minutes. So one evening he's dining with his wife in a little diner next to the, the geyser and um, And and they have the same clock in there, these big bay windows facing the geyser. And every 24 minutes, what you see is people getting up from their chairs and running over to the window to behold this beautiful sight, to see how majestic and how powerful it is. And all the people are clamoring and talking about it. And and every 24 minutes, this happens. Then one time he gets to the window and he looks over his shoulder. And while everybody else is running to the window to experience and to see this, this great occasion, the waitstaff is just cleaning off tables, and they're taking the dirty dishes and putting them away, and, and, uh, and they're filling up glasses of water again, paying no attention to, to, the, to the geyser, no, no attention, all, as if it's not even there. And so he, he pulls one of them to the side, and he says, how come... They are not as excited about this as we are. How, how, how come they don't pay attention and they act like nothing's going on? And he, he said to him, he said, because we've seen this before. We see this every day. For, for you people who come here as a tourist, this might be fun for you. It might be exciting for you. But it's become kind of routine for us. And so, even though there's a lot of water and it, 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 it shoots out of the ground uh, and it's majestic and beautiful and powerful, we've seen it so much that we're not really impressed by it anymore. Don't ever get to the point where the routineness of God's faithfulness in your life becomes unimpressive. Come on, God. Let's pray. Father God, we are people who are in desperate need of you, Lord. We're in desperate need of you now. We're in desperate need of you always. That our, our, our lives should be marked by a level of dependence that's been built on seeing your faithfulness over the years, seeing your steadfast love and your mercy and your kindness and your patience with us that that gives us a confidence that we can come to you and that you'll act and that you'll move on our behalf. So God, we, we come to you as a weak people, as a broken people, as a burdened people, praying that you would move on our behalf, whatever it is, God, Whatever it is, God, that you want to do in our lives, whatever it is that you want to utilize to maximize the way you get glory out of our lives, we want to do. And God, we know we can't do that when unbelief is present. And so we cry out just like that, Father. We believe, help our unbelief, O Lord, that we might depend wholly upon you forever and for always.